This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome to Master the MRC PCH. In this podcast, we tap into the expertise here at Great Ormond Street Hospital, giving you an overview of a topic on the RCPCH curriculum. You may be revising for an exam or just fancy brushing up on a need-to-know topic. I'm Emma, an anaesthetic registrar and the Digital Learning Fellow at GOSH, and today I am joined by the brilliant Dr. Keir Shields, a consultant in general paediatrics at GOSH, textbook author and examiner for the Diploma of Child Health. Today we will be talking about history taking in adolescent patients. This maps to several areas of the curriculum for the theory exam under the topic of adolescent health. And it could also come up in the clinical exam, particularly in the communication skills stations. We hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you so much, Dr. Shields, for joining us again today. It's lovely to be back. Thank you. So to start with, what would you like people to get out of this podcast today? So this podcast is going to be about adolescent history taking. And I think that adolescence is an area of paediatrics that needs to be treated quite specially, but that we're woefully underprepared for. Um, We concentrate a lot on babies and vulnerable, younger school-age children and infants. And once we get to adolescence, they start being sort of adult size and therefore stop treating them as if they're specialist paediatric patients. But they're not. They're a cohort of individuals with very particular needs, very particular physiology, very particular behaviours. That means we can't treat them like adults. And hopefully what I can do is raise a few issues that will improve your history taking skills when dealing with this particularly interesting group of children and young people. Why do you think it's important to be able to take a history from an adolescent? So before the COVID pandemic, about one child in every 10 admitted to a general paediatric ward would be an adolescent in some form of mental health crisis, whether it is an overdose, whether it's self-harm, whether it's anorexia nervosa, you tend to find that it was about 10% of paediatric admissions were adolescents with mental health crises. Since the pandemic, that has increased to 55%. It's a huge increase in health burden. And we owe it to our patients to be able to take a really good history and examination and get them the help that they need. And adolescents, particularly adolescents in mental health crisis, are quite underserved because they fall between the two stools of paediatric patients and mental health patients. And actually, we need to be able to address them. They've also got different health needs on top of that. So when we're looking at adolescents in diabetes clinic or cystic fibrosis clinic, they've got particular agendas that, of stuff that's important to them that's different from the stuff that's important to an eight-year-old or indeed their parents. So having a framework in which we can explore their particular needs is essential if we're not going to abandon them as part of our paediatric cohort. And so how would you tailor your approach to history taking with an adolescent? So what extra things would you do versus a standard paediatric history for a younger child? So I think there are there are three elements that we need to draw together, possibly four. 
let me, let me try and count them as I'm going along. The first simple element is at what point does a child become an adolescent and what time do you have to think about the next three things that I'm going to talk about? And that is actually different for different children and it's different for different clinical cases. So I'm going to leave that question hanging and come back to it at, at, at the end. Next important thing is that adolescents are more likely than other children to have issues that they're keeping secret from their parents, but are still likely to be brought along by their parents because adolescents can't drive themselves to hospital and they need a parent with them if they're, you know, to consent and, and, and to understand fully what's going on in, in health. So they will have a parent with them, but they may have things that they need to talk about that involve not having their parents around. So the first difference between adolescent and pediatric history taking is that I always try to have a portion of the history taking uh, and explanation clinical encounter done without the parent in the room. So that, that is really important that for the first time, I'm actually separating a parent and child, just looking at the child on their own, often with a chaperone and making sure that I can get an honest reflection from the young person about what's going on. Because if I ask them whether they're involved in drugs or whether they're involved in gangs or whether they are sexually active, they may not want to be honest. And if something like a sexually transmitted disease is on the, or a pregnancy is on the differential diagnosis, I need to get that information. The second difference is that there is a specific method that we'll talk about in a bit for taking a history from an adolescent about sort of social and environmental factors that are important to them. It's called the HEADS or the HEADS-ED assessment, and it's something that's really important to have a grip on. It's something that you could very easily be asked to do in a clinical exam, and it's something that you should be doing in practice. And then the third difference is that usually when I'm talking to an adolescent, a little bit at the back of my brain is doing a full mental state examination as well. And that's something that's important to have a, a schema to do as well. We'll talk about that. But the, the three key things are independent history, heads assessment, and a mental state examination. So how do you approach taking an independent history? Do you just ask the parent to leave? Are there any kind of polite ways you have of doing that? So it's really important to be able to inform both parent and an adolescent that you'd like to take an independent history and explain that it's something that you do with all young people over the age of, say, 12, and that it's, it's not necessarily about this case, but it's, it's important. The next mistake that people make is that usually they then send the parent out of the room and take a history from the child. What you actually need to do, and it seems a bit counterintuitive, is to send the child out of the room first and to take an independent history from the parent. And then you ask the parent and the child to swap places. It often feels that the best thing to do is to talk to the child first in order to create a sort of safe space and get their agenda out. But actually, although a child in the first sort of 30 seconds of that consultation will feel comforted, they'll suddenly realize that they're about to leave the room and their mum's going to come in on their own. And you run the risk of saying something that the doctor's going to tell their mum. Whereas if you send the child out first and have a private conversation with the parent, 
parent leaves, the child comes in and you can say, right, I'm going to have a chat with, with you, but I've already done the mum bit. By the way, she's worried about X, Y, Z. But you now know that when mum comes in, I'm not going to tell her anything. Or at least we're going to come to an arrangement in our own conversation about stuff that maybe we, we need to talk mm. to you about. But I'm not going to blurt your secrets out. So there is a perverse form of safety and confidentiality with sending the child out first and prioritizing the parent, because in the end, you actually end up prioritizing the confidentiality of the child. So that's, that's how I do it. And then you can have a really good structured interview with the young person about what matters to them. Yeah, okay, that's really helpful. I'd never thought about it in that way before. And so moving on, you mentioned earlier something called the HEADS assessment. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, the HEADS assessment is a really good mnemonic for remembering how to do a social history in an adolescent. And the the only problem with it is that H, E, A, D and S all stand for something different. But over the years, HEADS has started to be spelt something like H, E, A, D, 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 S, 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 as more things have been added to it. But the, the long and the short of it is that you need to talk about their, their home life and about their underlying health and how their family get along and how any health conditions that they've got impact upon their life. So those are the two sort of things under, under H. And, you know, things that impact people from a, a health point of view can be anything from their exercise tolerance to their ability to, to fit in, their, their height can be all sorts of different things, but you need to ask about their, their home and their health. The E stands for education, how things are at school, what their school attendance is, how their grades have been. Have they had some you know, pretty good grades that have then gone downhill recently? How is life at school? Are they being bullied? A is for their activities. What do they enjoy doing with their friends? Do they have relationships, hobbies that they're particularly drawn to? Because a lack of that sort of thing can have a real significant impact, which includes access to activities, not just a willingness to engage in them. D stands for drugs. So drugs, alcohol, and their relationship with that. That's really, really important in children, for example, who have type 1 diabetes, where they've really got to know what alcohol does to their blood sugar. It's not just a simple sort of, are they experimenting? Are they having a, a, a little cigarette behind the bike sheds at school? But there can be some real important health learning that needs to be done around that. And then S stands for almost anything you want it to stand for. So you've got social media is a really important one. What platforms are they using? What sort of content are they making? What sort of content are they the victims of? Bullying on social media is a big deal. Who are they following? You know, are they drawn into accounts that glamorize certain ideologies or ways of thinking? S can also stand for suicidality. So how good is their mental health? Do they often have thoughts of ending their life? So you can look at their behaviours and their thought disturbance and their emotions within that. 
S also stands for sex and sexuality and sexual identity. So the third S is looking at sort of what they are exploring within themselves and how they express that. The third S stands for sex and sexual expression and sexual identity and sexuality. So how are they exploring their identity in a world that is giving increasing options to people, but at the same time, increasing judgment about how they may feel and how they may express themselves. So it's really important to explore those because that's where a lot of conflict can come within a family or within school or within peer groups. The HEADS assessment provides a really good way of going through the individual things that form a social history, whilst at the same time giving you an idea of whether stuff is on track, whether there's action needed with something, but it's not necessarily immediate action, or whether you need to make an immediate intervention on something. For example, with their suicidality, whether they have frequent or daily experiences with drugs and alcohol, or whether they are missing an awful lot of school, for example. So it gives you a good framework for discussing issues with an adolescent and with their parent. And there are some versions of the HEADS assessment that you can look at online that actually score different, different things to give you a, a figure to work out whether you need to be concerned or not. And there are other versions that just guide you through the, the conversational process. But the HEADS assessment is an essential tool in talking to adolescents. And can I just ask, when you're using the HEADS assessment, do you use it the same way for every young person or do you tailor it according to what you're most worried about? So, for example, do you ask every young person about suicide and mental health or is it something that you might ask if you had flagged up concerns in that area already? I ask every question to every adolescent. Adolescents have got a really wide range of different affects that they can present to you. There are some who present very confident. There are some who present very withdrawn, and that's just them. And unpicking the affect of an adolescent and sort of stratifying your history based on how they appear is a recipe for disaster. You can have some very high-functioning, very bright, very positive-looking children who don't look like they're experimenting with drugs and alcohol, but unless you ask them, you won't know. There will be loads of children who wear baggy outfits with the cuffs down over their hands just because that's how they wear their clothing, not because they're hiding suicide attempt scars. And there will be those who have not acted on suicidal compulsions, but do think about it or talk about it or have Googled it. So I think it's really important not to be blinded or blinkered by the person in front of you, but actually to ask a standard set of questions, because sometimes it pulls something out. And if you ask the same standard set of questions to the parents, they often pull out slightly different concerns. Like, you know, they're, they're worried about certain friends that their child has, or they think that their child might be gay and isn't telling them. And actually, their child is going through something totally different on social media that their parents don't really understand what TikTok is, so they can't explain it. And so unless you ask all of the questions to both the parent and the child, you won't get a really good understanding of the balance of concerns that exists within that relationship. Yeah, OK. 
Talking a bit more about mental health assessment, you mentioned doing a mental state examination. Can you talk a bit more about that? The mental state examination is probably the worst taught examination that we come across in clinical medicine. I was once taught by a very wise psychiatrist that if one of his inpatients had abdominal pain, a surgeon on the end of the phone would expect him as a medical doctor to be able to perform an abdominal examination and at least find important clues like rebound tenderness and be able to explain those over the phone in surgical language to a surgeon. He intimated that that was not necessarily reciprocated when it came to a colleague in a hospital doing a mental state examination. And it's the psychiatrist's version of an abdominal or neurological examination. It's an important examination and it's one that goes alongside your clinical history. So I've got a method that I use to try and synthesize a mental state examination, which is, I think, an essential part of our work and one that is undertaught and underappreciated. The mental state examination is really going on while you're doing a history, but at the same time is a conclusion at the end of your history based on how the patient seems and what they have said. The way that I break it down is I use the mnemonic asthmatics, which at least gives you some headings in which to consider what the person in front of you is like. A is for appearance. Are they wearing very baggy clothing? Do they look unkempt? Do they look malnourished? Do they look obese? A general impression of their appearance is important. The S is for their speech. Are they speaking in single words? Are they speaking in full sentences? Are they speaking with pressured speech? Are they hyperactive in their speech? Do they understand everything that they themselves are saying? And with that comes their social behavior, their eye contact. How are they interacting with you? Then there's their thought content. So are they experiencing delusions, hallucinations? Do they have any sort of problems with logic or staying on track? Do they have an attentional problem? So their thought is really important. And then H is for hunger. What's their appetite like? Do they have an issue around food? Are they overeating in moments of anxiety? Are they so stressed that they've got no appetite at all? The M and the A come together as mood and affect. Mood is their emotional state, how they feel, whether they feel happy or sad, whether they feel abandoned, hopeless, or intensely excited. And affect is the way that they present that. So although they say that they're depressed, do they look happy? Although they say they're happy, do they look depressed? The affect is the way that they demonstrate their mood. The next T is toilet. Do they have problems with their bowels? Do they have problems passing urine? Are they constantly going to the toilet? Are they vomiting? That sort of thing. The I stands for insight, which is one of the most important elements of the mental state examination. 
And that is basically geared around to does the person know that they have a problem? Do they hear voices but know the voices aren't there? Or do they hear voices and assert that those voices are real? Do they feel panicked out of nowhere but realise that their panic is coming from nowhere? Or do they feel panicked because they feel a, a feeling of doom that something is going to happen to them that's terrible? What is their insight into their condition? There's that line from Hamlet where after his father has been murdered by his uncle and his mother has married his uncle and his girlfriend has left him and has been banished to another country, he says, I have of late, but wherefore I know not, lost all my mirth. He says, I feel really, really bad, but even given everything that's happened, I don't know why I feel this bad. And that is a level of expression of insight that he feels that his mood is worse than it should be in the context. A brilliant description of clinical depression. The next C is cognition. So do they have problems at school? Do they have problems concentrating? Do they have problems with their attention? And the last S is sleep. Are they struggling to sleep? Are they tired all the time? Are they awake at night? And if you pick apart with your history, those key things, appearance, social behavior and speech, thought, hunger, mood, affect, toilet, insight, cognition, and sleep, you will get a set of bullet points at the end of your history that really allow you to stratify whether this child is in a mental health crisis or not. And it will give you a format that when you speak to the child and adolescent mental health practitioners, they will really appreciate you having done a full history because they will be able to risk stratify then how urgently they need to see this child. You alluded to this earlier about what age you start treating a child or a young person as an adolescent, because clearly some adolescents can be young or mature for their age. How do you approach this difficulty? And are there any groups where you might have to start thinking about it at an earlier time to another group? That is a really key question for clinical practice. And it's it's one that sort of doesn't really turn up in the exams, but is probably the most important bit of adolescent history taking in real life. There are some groups of children for whom talking about adolescent issues before they are an adolescent is essential. And the particular example that I like to use is of insulin-dependent diabetics. We ask diabetic children to manage their insulin at school when they have their packed lunch, etc., from quite an early age. And they generally know more about how to manage their blood sugars than their teachers or their school nurses do. So we ask of them a certain degree of independence at a very young age. But with that, we've got to be vigilant that when they become adolescents, they're going to start exploring behaviours that are more risky to them than they are to other people. So if a normal, in inverted commas, child gets drunk that one time and ends up in hospital and wakes up with a headache and they're grounded for a month, that sort of doesn't matter in the great scheme of things. That's something that we can pass off as normal adolescent behaviour. It's much riskier in an insulin-dependent diabetic when they don't understand what that's going to do 
to their blood sugar and they don't understand what that's going to do to their insulin sensitivity. And they run the risk of dying with hypoglycemia just because they've gone out for a few drinks without knowing what's going on. Equally, sex burns up a huge number of calories and they may be quite vigilant about what to do with their insulin when they go for a swim, but won't know what to do with their insulin when they start engaging in sex. So you've got to start teaching them about the risks much earlier than you would address these subjects with a child with cystic fibrosis, for example, because a child with cystic fibrosis doesn't necessarily risk dying when they go out for a couple of cheeky vodkas at the age of 14. And so pinning down what the risks are to particular children of certain risky behaviours is key in working out when to start talking to children as if they're adolescents. So that's quite a useful summary of when we start having to think about talking to children as if they're adolescents. Moving up again, is there a point where we should start thinking about talking to adolescents as if they were adults? That is a very intelligent question. Yes, is the answer. And I think it starts to become important in two different situations. Firstly, when a child is in charge of their own medical care when they are away from home, which could just be the school day or could be a school holiday. They need to have total responsibility over their own asthma or their own diabetes, and they have to be trusted to do it properly. And that involves talking to them in a sense as adults and trying to prepare them for the fact that if they mess this up, it's just on them. There's that, you know, there aren't any safety nets and the teacher can ask them whether they've taken their inhaler or not. But if they lie, then that's on them. But the other end of things is with any child who's been chronically unwell and is followed up by paediatric services, they're going to end up in adult services relatively soon. And so the transition process from paediatrics to adults should usually start about the age of 12 with an idea of increasing independence over their own condition, but get to a point when they're sort of around GCSE years or or at the most A-level years to get to a point where they are leading the consultation, their parent is in the back seat, they are proving to you that they are an adult and ready to go to adult services because they're going to go to adult services anyway. And adult services aren't going to be as vigilant and polite and as jolly. And, you know, they're not going to have pleasant conversations about how things are going to be at school. They're going to have 10, 15 minute appointments, which are quite perfunctory and getting through the the factory of adult medicine. And they're going to be left to their own devices. So the whole transition process is, I'm sure, a lecture in itself, but it is one that we have to be aware of as early as possible, because the last thing that you want is to have a 15-year-old child on your books where suddenly you're thinking, oh my God, next year, they're going to be an adult diabetic. I probably need to do something about that. You've got to think of it early. And that involves liaison with your adult colleagues and an alteration in the way that you treat the patient in both senses of the word. Before we finish, I'm just going to ask some quickfire questions that we ask on every podcast. Firstly, how does this topic tend to pop up in the exam? Are there any classic questions that are asked? In the written exams, you'll get questions on adolescent medicine that are geared towards identifying certain red flags. And also in terms of 
working out what may be a physical versus a mental illness. So the classic examples are trying to pick apart what is a panic attack or what is hyperthyroidism, trying to pick apart what is causing a child to have vomiting in the mornings when they've got a positive pregnancy test. Are they pregnant or have they got a beta-HCG producing brain tumour? Picking apart an adolescent's history is important for that. Where it really comes in is in the history taking and explanation sections of the clinical exam. You've got to be able to talk to an adolescent formally and properly. You've got to have a framework in which to do that. And you may be given a relatively healthy adolescent who's got celiac disease, for example, but have to pick apart how their life as an adolescent with celiac disease is affecting their home life, their education, whether they are involved in drugs, whether they're fitting in, whether they're excluded from certain activities, all the sorts of stuff that we talked about in the HEADS assessment will come in in the MRC-PCH. The only caveat that I will say about the exam is that I wouldn't, in an exam situation where time is limited, ask for the parents to leave the adolescent. It's worth just saying, under normal circumstances in a longer clinic, I might have a conversation with you on your own and possibly with your mum on your own. I don't think we've got time for that now. And then move on because it's going to disrupt the physical flow of an exam if you start trying to push people out of the room into corridors where other people may be walking around between exams. So just be slightly careful with that, but do make sure that if it's possible, you do it in real practice. Secondly, are there any useful resources that you would recommend on this topic? Don't forget the bubbles remains one of my favourite resources out there in the world. It's the largest collaboration internationally of paediatric medical education lists. And there's lots of good stuff there about adolescent health and adolescent medicine. Very recently, I think it was last year, they had an online conference all about adolescent health that is recorded. And so you've got not just lectures and talks about an approach to adolescent history, but also you've got interviews with youth workers, people who specialise in gang violence, people who specialise in accident prevention. The biggest cause of death in this age group is physical accidents. The second biggest cause of death is suicide attempts. So thing that's most likely to kill your adolescent patient is the adolescent patient. It's really, really important to get to know them and to try and intervene where you can. So that conference is worth its weight in gold if you can download it. There may be a fee for downloading it, but it is very, very well worth watching. Finally, what are your three takeaway learning points that you hope listeners to this podcast will take away from today? So the three key learning points are your adolescent patient is different from both adults and from children. You need to get them on their own as well as accompanied because they will give you different answers. And you need to find out where the problems actually lie by an independent history. The second thing is the HEADS assessment is the framework for doing that. It contains everything that you need to ask and allows you to identify points of concern, but also points where both the parent's agenda and the child's agenda are different. And those agendas may simply be concerns. 
The final thing is that in most adolescent histories, you should also be doing a concomitant mental state examination. And the asthmatics mnemonic is the best way to structure that. Thank you very much, Dr. Shields. It's been great coming back. Thank you for listening to this episode of Master the MRCPCH. If you want to get in touch, you can do so via social media. You can find Gosh Learning Academy on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. If you would like to suggest a topic for a future episode, please email us at digital.learning at gosh.nhs.uk. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.